Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Numerous treatment strategies are utilized to treat patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome, with benzodiazepines being most common. Unfortunately, benzodiazepines carry inherent risks, especially at high doses often required to treat AWS patients. The use of barbiturates, particularly phenobarbital for AWS, has gained interest in recent years as the literature on this topic continues to grow. Joining us on today's podcast is Dr. Kyla Wamsley, PharmD, who will take us on a blast to the barbiturate pass and discuss where phenobarbital may be used in alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Phenobarbital historically was utilized as the primary um, pharmaceutical agent for alcohol withdrawal syndrome, or AWS as I'll be referring to it going forward, um, until about the 1970s and 80s in the United States when benzodiazepine use became the primary um, pharmaceutical modality for treatment of AWS. Now, during this time, uh, across the pond, there was still some utilization in Europe with phenobarbital, and much like any um, fashion trend, uh, it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback uh, in present day. Hopefully by the end of this presentation, um, you'll have a better understanding of the pathophysiology and complications associated with AWS, um, understand a little bit more about the treatment modalities and commonly utilized agents in the ICU setting and we'll outline some of the appropriate phenobarbital dosing regimens that could be utilized um, in these particular patients. So alcohol withdrawal syndrome is a set of symptoms that occur clinically um, due to a sudden lack of alcohol in patients that have chronic ethanol ingestion. And this is something um, where 283 million patients across the world um, have an alcohol use disorder. And uh, the World Health Organization estimates that 50% of those patients will experience AWS throughout the course of their lifetime. In the United States specifically, roughly a little over 8% of our population has alcohol use disorder, which means that roughly 4% of our population in the United States uh, will experience AWS within their lifetime. And of note, this does attribute to roughly 3 million deaths annually worldwide. While the 4% might seem like a small number overall, when looking at alcohol-related admissions, uh, it accounts for roughly 40% of hospitalizations within the United States annually, and accounts for up to 30% of ICU admissions. So despite its uh, low uh, prevalence overall, it is something that we encounter quite frequently within the hospital setting. So taking a step back and kind of getting a good understanding about the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal syndrome, this is our GABA-A receptor. It's located on the postsynaptic neuron in the central nervous system, and it's our main inhibitory uh, receptor um, on the postsynaptic neuron. What happens with the GABA-A receptor during activation with ethanol, or alcohol, is the binding of alcohol to the alpha subunit causes a conformational change in ion opening, allowing chloride ions to enter into the postsynaptic neuron, which uh, results in an increased in inhibitory tone of the postsynaptic neuron and leads essentially to an inhibitory type response. This is great for you know, um, temporal, uh, infrequent utilization. However, in patients that are ingesting ethanol at a more frequent um, uh, rate over time, our body will naturally try to compensate for the increased inhibitory response and will actually downregulate the GABA-A receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. 
Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about benzodiazepines uh, today. And so just to kind of go over the benzodiazepine mechanism of action, uh, it enhances GABA receptor activity um, in that it binds to the GABA receptor itself and allows increased binding affinity for GABA to the GABA-A receptor. And this essentially increases the uh, frequency of channel opening um, and overall leads to a pronounced inhibitory effect of the postsynaptic neuron. Another spoiler alert, you may not have got it from the title today, uh, we're going to be talking about phenobarbital as well. And so phenobarbital works a little bit differently than benzodiazepines at the GABA-A receptor. What happens with phenobarbital is that it'll actually bind at a different allosteric site. It causes a conformational change at the GABA receptor and actually potentiates the channel opening or prolongs the opening overall, which leads to more of a prolonged inhibitory effect. There is one other receptor that's going to be pertinent to our discussion here today, and that's the NMDA receptor, uh, also located on the postsynaptic neuron. Um, however, this is more of an excitatory glutamate receptor. And so usually what happens with the NMDA receptor is glutamate will bind to it, allow calcium influx into the postsynaptic neuron, and lead to an overall excitatory tone within the cell. What happens with ethanol, uh, or phenobarbital binding to it, is that they will also bind to the NMDA receptor. This will actually prevent glutamate binding to the receptor, not allowing calcium influx, and decreasing the overall excitatory tone of that particular postsynaptic neuron. Similarly to the GABA-A receptor, um, our bodies will naturally try to adjust with increased exposure over time to ethanol. And what happens is we get an upregulation of the NMDA receptors in the postsynaptic neuron. Kind of bring this all full circle, specifically with alcohol withdrawal syndrome, is our bodies will naturally try to maintain a homeostatic balance between inhibitory, represented by the blue box, and excitatory, represented by the red box, tones within our body. What happens with um, an incident alcohol exposure is an increased inhibitory response um, for a temporal amount of time. And so we get the weight there shifted with an increase in an inhibitory response. And this is something that can happen transiently, but with repeated exposure, similar to what we just talked about, we'll get a downregulation of the GABA-A receptor and an upregulation of the NMDA receptors, compensating for the increased um, exposure to alcohol. Now, when we talk about AWS, what's happening is the lack of the ethanol within the cell now is causing a shift over to the excitatory response, and that's where we start seeing some of our autonomic dysregularities. There are several different symptoms that kind of occur in three main phases for AWS. And so the first phase is generally in the first 24 hours. Um, the major complication that we kind of look for in this particular range is the presence of seizures. And this can occur as early as six hours within patients going through and experiencing AWS. Our second phase is going to be the 24 to 48 hour range. Um, and the major complication that we see within this particular range is hallucinations. And these can occur actually as early as 12 hours as well. So kind of between phase one and phase two. During this time phase, we're also experiencing, our patients will be experiencing uh, several more um, uh, side effects as well. And this is also where we can start seeing tachycardia, tachypnea, uh, and the presence of tremors as well. Our phase three generally occurs in the time frame of 48 to 96 hours. And the major complication that we're trying to keep an eye out for in this particular time frame is delirium tremens. The onset of delirium tremens in this particular patient population carries with it roughly a 15% mortality rate. And so early identification and, and attempts at prevention of progression to this particular state are very important as we're trying to mitigate patients uh, and prevent overall death. So 
patients that are experiencing these major uh, or even moderate side effects or symptoms from AWS have a couple different implications overall on how we're taking care of them. Generally, they have an increased length of stay compared to patients who aren't admitted um, with AWS symptoms. They also have uh, increased propensity to need mechanical ventilation and also remain on mechanical ventilation for longer periods of time. And they're also associated with an increased mortality overall versus patients that aren't experiencing AWS major complications. And so that'll bring us to our first um, Poll Everywhere question. And so if you could uh, respond either by using pollev.com slash mayorx on your web browser, or you can also text mayorx to 22333 uh, once to join, and then you can submit either A, B, C, or D uh, for the answer to this question. And so this question is how early may patients present um, and experience seizures from alcohol withdrawal syndrome? Is it A, six seconds? B, six minutes, C, six hours, or D, six days? And I'll give everybody a moment to respond. And it looks like we've got several answers so far. So I'm going to agree with everybody here. Uh, six hours, kind of like what we just discussed. Um, six seconds and six minutes, obviously a little bit too early, um, or earlier than I had mentioned before with the six-hour time frame. And six days is generally too long of an onset time for patients to experience seizures secondary to alcohol withdrawal syndrome. So now that we know what our patients are kind of presenting like, how do we treat these patients and prevent progression to those more major complications overall? We have three main treatment modalities, uh, the first one being symptom triggered. This is more of uh, treating your patients based off of the number and severity of the symptoms they're experiencing, um, and most commonly is associated with a CWA protocol. And so we use pharmaceutical intervention based off of uh, how they stratify as either mild, moderate, or severe complications and symptoms. A secondary treatment modality would be loading patients um, with a pharmaceutical agent, and this um, will generally be for patients uh, or utilized for patients who have had previous uh, complications from AWS or who are experiencing active complications currently. And so this particular modality can be utilized either in conjunction um, with all three treatment modalities um, or utilized with one or the other, the last of which being scheduled dosing. And so generally with scheduled dosing, you are treating a patient up to a certain point where you control their symptoms with pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical intervention, and then you're tapering off of that um, set point by about 50% every 24 to 48 hours until they're no longer on that agent. Interestingly, there's not really a great guideline recommendation for what treatment modality is best. Um, so you do see combinations of all three or combinations of two um, or sometimes monotherapy as well. And so it can be a little bit complicated um, in determining which agents is going to be best for our patients. But hopefully after today, you'll have a better understanding of what we'd like to do for Phenobarbitz Hall. There are a wide array of treatment agents that we can utilize within the ICU setting. Like I mentioned before with my spoiler alerts, we're just going to be focusing on benzodiazepines and phenobarbital or barbiturates today. So benzodiazepines, as I mentioned previously, work specifically and solely on the GABA-A receptor. Uh, typical agents that are utilized in AWS are diazepam, lorazepam, or chlorodiazepoxide. Dosing is unique in that we have uh, oral, intravenous, and intramuscular options, depending on the needs of our patient. And the duration of action for the benzodiazepines will also vary based on the agent that's selected for our patient, anywhere from 30 to 20 plus hours. Looking at benzodiazepines as a whole, um, benefits are that it has specific GABA activity, uh, which mimics um, ethanol overall. It does have sedative and anti-seizure effects, so we're able to utilize this singular agent. Um, and then there are also multiple agents for lorazepam, and we can custom tailor which agent we utilize based off the patient in front of us and their comorbidities. 
Some considerations with benzodiazepines are that they only have GABA activity, and they also rely specifically on GABA activation, so we can encounter ceiling doses um, in patients who don't have high concentrations of um, intracellular GABA. We do know that benzodiazepine use is associated with respiratory depression overall, and specifically in conjunction with other CNS depressant agents, and that there is uh, GABA tolerance or cross-tolerance as well. And so in some patients that are exposed to ethanol for a long, uh, prolonged duration of time, um, you can actually get a conformational change in the GABA-A receptor as well that makes the efficacy of benzodiazepines decreased. One last thing to kind of consider with benzodiazepine use is that it can and is linked to ICU delirium, specifically with larger and repeated doses. Looking at phenobarbital, as mentioned, it works on both the GABA-A and NMDA receptor. Uh, the dosing for this can vary um, quite drastically, as mentioned with that Venn diagram. Um, it'll also specifically vary based off the particular setting that the patient is in. In the emergency department, you may see more of a loading dose um, and either sending the patient out. Um, in medical and ICU, you might see combinations of loading scheduled um, or just PRN dosing as well. Phenobarbital is available as an oral IV or intramuscular agent. However, one thing to consider with IV administration is the rate at which we administer it as it can cause hypotension. Duration of action is significantly longer than benzodiazepines with a half-life of 80 to 120 hours. So once we give that dose, it's going to be sticking around for quite a while. One of the considerations that we'll touch on in just a moment here um, are the concomitant use of CNS depressants. So patients who are also receiving opioids um, and sedatives and sometimes anti-epileptics can cause a more pronounced respiratory or CNS depressant effect. And phenobarbital is also a CYP3A4 enzyme inducer, and so considerations for any CYP3A4 enzyme substrates is going to be something to take into consideration before initiating therapy in these patients. We're looking at phenobarbital as a whole. Um, some of the benefits include seizure and agitation control. Um, There'll be a study that we talk about in just a moment about how cases that are refractory to benzodiazepines, phenobarbital has been demonstrated to be a good uh, secondary agent to add on. That long half-life of 80 to 120 hours can be of great benefit, especially as this causes a self-tapering effect with the utilization of phenobarbital. And as a monotherapy agent has been associated with less respiratory depression overall, though it does have a dose-dependent respiratory depression um, component to it that we need to consider as well. And lastly, the pharmacologic mechanism of action, uh, working on both the GABA-A and the NMDA receptor, um, shows to be a little bit of a benefit compared to agents that only work on GABA-A specifically. Some of the things that we need to consider when utilizing um, phenobarbital, though, are patients who have severe hepatic impairment, as this can cause accumulation of phenobarbital and lead to more pronounced CNS depressant effects. Um, as we know, Roughly 15% of our patients with AWS have cirrhosis, um, with a greater amount of those patients having some form of hepatic impairment as well. And so judicious use of um, phenobarbital in this particular patient's uh, population is going to be very important as well. The long half-life is a double-edged sword. While it's great to have that long half-life for the self-tapering effect, once we have it on board, it's going to stick around for a while. And so uh, just kind of bearing that in mind for uh, CNS depressant use in addition to and then lastly, just a reminder that that CYP enzyme induction um, has been shown to, after a singular dose, last for up to 14 days and can take anywhere from 72 to 96 hours for onset.
And so this will bring us to our second poll everywhere question. So what is phenobarbital's mechanism of action? Is it A, specifically the GABA-A receptor, B, the NMDA receptor, or C, both receptors? And it looks like we have roughly the same number of people responding here. So I would 100% agree it's going to be working on uh, both the GABA-A and NMDA receptor. Um, it's kind of the claim to fame and reason why it's starting to make a comeback in literature is wondering if there is that benefit overall of that dual mechanism of action. And so now that we've talked a little bit about why there may be a benefit of phenobarbital when compared to benzodiazepines, let's kind of look at what the literature shows us overall. So um, Nisevich uh, and colleagues uh, did perform a retrospective cohort study. Uh, they were looking at general hospital patients overall, but had a little over 550 patients enrolled in their study. And they were assessing the intervention of scheduled phenobarbital monotherapy versus scheduled benzodiazepine therapy regimens. And they were trying to specifically assess on clinical outcomes secondary to AWS, and also um, monitored ICU admissions and length of stay. Of note, it's a little bit interesting that this particular study chose to utilize scheduled benzodiazepine monotherapy regimens, and this is not generally um, a mode of practice as we use more of a CWA-based protocol and use PRNs overall. So just one thing to take of note for this study. Well, their dosing regimen for the phenobarbital component um, was a little unique, and so they stratified patients initially off of their AWS risk factors. So anybody who had a, a history of severe complications from AWS um, or had active symptoms of complicated AWS were stratified into either low, medium, or high risk. Our low-risk patients were put specifically into the benzodiazepine arm, uh, which will kind of bear some significance in just a moment, which we'll talk about. And then once they were paired into either the medium or the high-risk arms, they were then stratified off their respiratory and sedation risks. And so this would include patients who maybe uh, have an active pneumonia, have rib fractures, are baseline need of, or have baseline O2 requirements. And so if they were on a lower-risk side for respiratory or sedation, they were actually given higher doses of phenobarbital in their load. And the patients that had higher risk overall were given lower doses overall. The doses did range anywhere from 6 to 15 milligrams per kilogram, though. And their loading doses of note were also not given all at once. Um, they were actually given intramuscularly um, every three hours for the total cumulative dose. And then after their dosing regimen uh, or their load was complete, they were transitioned over to an oral regimen. Um, and then decreased by 50% of the total dose every 48 hours thereafter. And so most patients ended up um, stopping their phenobarbital therapy around day seven. So looking at the results from this particular trial, um, as you might see here, notice by the asterisks, that none of these results are statistically significant. And so there was no difference between the benzodiazepine and the phenobarbital arms for any of the clinical onsets, as well as ICU admission or length of stay or overall hospital length of stay. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this particular study uh, to light was that they had roughly the same proportion or 12% of ICU admissions, and there was no difference um, noticed in that ICU length of stay between phenobarbital and benzodiazepines. And so one of the unique things about this particular study is that, as I mentioned before, if anybody was at a low AWS risk, they were automatically put into the benzodiazepine arm. So it's safe to infer that patients in the phenobarbital arm were likely sicker overall and still demonstrated no difference in any of the efficacy outcomes uh, between the two arms.
which comes into important play when we look at their secondary stratification. And this is a secondary table of results that they showed. And this was a subset of patients initially started on the benzodiazepine therapy and then transitioned into phenobarbital because they were having refractory symptoms overall. And though there were only 16 patients that had these refractory symptoms that needed to be transitioned to phenobarbital, and of note, they did experience increased delirium ICU admissions and, length, and hospital length of stay, but didn't have an increased ICU length of stay. And so while some people may look at this study and associate phenobarbital use um, with these three statistically significant outcomes, I think that the patient population itself um, with that more severe ranking uh, that were refractory to benzodiazepines were more than likely going to need a require um, an ICU stay, and also an overall longer hospital stay in general. Our next study uh, was by Gold and colleagues, and this was another retrospective cohort study. Um, and this was a pre-post protocolized uh, study assessing medical ICU patients with severe AWS. And so they were looking at the addition of phenobarbital bolus dosing to patients who were starting to have refractory looking uh, AWS symptoms to diazepam therapy. They were specifically assessing um, for the presence of delirium tremens, mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, and uh, um, progression of a nosocomial pneumonia. They had a relatively unique dosing strategy in which they initiated most patients on diazepam 10 milligrams intravenously. And every hour they would assess the patient to see if they were still agitated. And if they remained agitated, they would escalate the dose um, anywhere from 10 to 20 milligrams per dose. They would escalate all the way up to 150 milligrams per individual dose if needed, which happened, I believe, in only three or four patients, but still quite a significant dose of diazepam for a patient. Um, once they started reaching these maximum thresholds, they would look to reassess, and if they remained agitated, they would add on phenobarbital doses to these patients. Now, the phenobarbital doses were in three separate doses that were escalating to a maximum of 450 milligrams of phenobarbital overall. If patients one hour after their last phenobarbolus dose remained agitated, they would transition over to propofol boluses and probably look to start doing intubation for these patients. Looking at their results, um, as you might imagine, putting a one-hour um, kind of doubling dose of diazepam in place, uh, we saw a lot larger total doses and individual doses of diazepam use in the post-implementation arm. Um, so uh, as you can see, the total diazepam use in the post-protocol was relatively doubled to the pre-protocol, um, as well as the max diazepam dose. There was also a higher utilization of phenobarbital overall but we still only hit about 60% utilization of phenobarbital in the post-implementation arm. However, it should be noted that phenobarbital was given more frequently in the first 24 hours with larger doses overall in the first 24 hours as well. And so while not demonstrated uh, directly on this slide, the ICU length of stay and overall hospital length of stay, as well as the development of nosocomial pneumonia, did not differ statistically between the two different arms. They did, however, demonstrate that patients um, did not require as much mechanical ventilation in the post-protocolized arm. And while I'd like to say that this is specifically just a phenobarbital, I think a limitation of this study was that we were giving a lot more benzodiazepines prior to and may have also contributed to that decreased um, uh, need for uh, mechanical intubation, which seems counterintuitive overall. Um, but my main takeaway from this particular study was that 
we can utilize phenobarbital and benzodiazepines in unison, and they may not increase our overall hospital length of stay or development of nosocomial pneumonia, and may actually have some type of benefit for decreased mechanical intubation overall. Our last study here was by Tidwell and colleagues, and this was, um, as you may have guessed, another retrospective cohort study. Uh, they were also assessing medical ICU patients and had about 120 patients enrolled within this study. Uh, they were looking specifically at scheduled phenobarbital bolus dosing uh, versus a um, PRN-based or CEWA-based benzodiazepine protocol. And they specifically wanted to assess ICU and hospital length of stay, mechanical ventilation, and the use of adjunct agents to control patients' anxiety and agitation. Another somewhat unique phenobarbital dosing regimen for these patients, um, and that patients that had an active DT were started with a bolus dose, or bolus loading dose, of 260 milligrams intravenously once, um, and then progressed down the overall taper depicted here. Patients who had a history of DT but no active DT were started at one tier down at that 97.2 milligrams. And this was an oral regimen where doses were administered three times a day uh, for two days and then de-escalated down further. If patients had no history of DT, uh, they were put into the second, high, or second lowest tier of dosing regimen, starting off at 64.8 milligrams per dose. Of note, with this particular trial, um, all patients were able to utilize lorazepam 1 milligrams every four hours if they needed to for agitation or breakthrough symptoms. This is the results uh, from this particular study. Um, as noted here, the only um, endpoint that they did not find statistically significant was antipsychotic adjunct use. Um, though it may appear numerically significant, um, when they ran it, they did it individually for each of the three different agents utilized, and so did not find that use statistically significant. But looking overall, between our benzodiazepine and phenobarbital arms, we had a decreased amount of dexmedetomidine use overall, um, a decreased use of adjunct lorazepam use overall. We had a far significantly, uh, or significantly fewer ventilator use between the two different arms as well, and also decreased ICU and overall hospital length of stay. And so this particular study, I believe, demonstrates that the utilization of phenobarbital in conjunction with benzodiazepines in a controlled, tapered setting uh, can lead to decreased adjunct agent use and decreased ventilator use and ICU and hospital length of stay overall. Kind of just looking back at the three studies we just discussed, uh, Nisevich was that retrospective in patients in a general med setting, had roughly 12% of patients progressing into the ICU but had no difference in overall or hospital or ICU length of stay and no uh, significant difference in the complications at all. They were doing that loading dose with a scheduled taper overall for their phenobarbital arm. Gold, another retrospective uh, study focusing mainly on the ICU patients, um, used the refractory addition of benzodiazepine, um, or refractory benzodiazepine AWS patients reutilizing as needed phenobarbital boluses, and they found a decreased utilization of mechanical ventilation in those patients and no statistically significant difference in the length of stay overall. And Tidwell, uh, in that last study that we talked about, um, did that scheduled taper with PRN Ativan as needed and did find that there was a decreased mechanical ventilation, length of stay, and adjunct agent use overall when compared to benzodiazepine monotherapy. And so that'll take us to our last assessment question. And so this will be more of a polling opinion question. So which uh, of the following ICU patients would be an ideal candidate for the treatment with phenobarbital therapy? Would it be A, or 54-year-old male patient with a history of mild AWS actively seizing? Would it be B, our 49-year-old female patient with no history of AWS? 
C, a 33-year-old male patient with a prior history of DT, or D, a 26-year-old female with history of moderate AWS symptoms. And I'll give everybody a moment here to just consider that one. Looks like we're all relatively steady here, maybe some slight fluctuations still going on. Um, I would completely agree with everybody who came up with answer C, um, the patient that had that history of DT. Um, I think that phenobarbital would be an ideal agent to help prevent and mitigate um, benzodiazepine use um, and prevent the progression to DT again. Um, I would also agree with everybody who said answer A, um, a patient who's actively seizing with a mild AWS history. Um, since we have the active complications in front of us right now, getting something on board right now to help prevent with seizure activity and also potentially mitigate benzodiazepine use would be an agent that I would also, uh, or a patient that I would consider utilization in as well. Um, I would also agree with patients are the person who decided to go with option D, our 26-year-old female with a history of moderate AWS. Um, the, this particular patient, uh, knowing that they might progress into more severe symptoms overall, getting an agent on board that can help mitigate PRN use um, would be of benefit overall in helping mitigate those symptoms from developing. And nobody went with option B, which doesn't necessarily surprise me at all. I don't think that this would be an ideal um, uh, patient for phenobarbital, but I think that one could still make the argument that phenobarbital for this particular patient, based on any other um, uh, symptoms that the patient may be experiencing overall. So just because they're not, uh, don't have a withdrawal history in front of us, if they came in with any active complications, um, it would be a patient that we could still consider phenobarbital use in, but may not be that initial agent of choice. And so some practical considerations. Um, regarding phenobarbital use is that there are, are currently two um, Mayo Clinic protocols being developed uh, for utilization of phenobarbital overall, one of those being in the medical ICU and the other one being in the emergency department overall. And so in the medical ICU, um, I haven't particularly seen this protocol, but I know that there are several different dosing regimens and strategies that may be utilized, as well as in the emergency department, there may be one or two different dosing strategies utilized. So knowing that we might be seeing a little bit more phenobarbital overall, having a good consideration of what you may see if you are working anywhere in the hospital and a patient is being transitioned to your unit. Uh, specifically, if you're working on a medical unit, doesn't mean that you wouldn't have to still understand and fully have a grasp of complications associated with phenobarbital <coughs> being on board. Um, knowing to mitigate uh, CNS depressant use and concomitant use, um, and then also knowing the SIP 3A4 enzyme induction process as well uh, for any medications that you'd be looking to add on or any medications that may require adjustments on a patient's PTA med list. Any patient leaving against medical advice as well, if they have phenobarbital on board and they're not actively experiencing any major complications would have that self-tapering effect. I know that in some patients um, that are leaving AMA, um, sometimes they're often provided um, an outpatient benzodiazepine self-taper for them to utilize. Um, but if we were utilizing phenobarbital in this particular patient population, we may be able to mitigate um, providing a patient with benzodiazepines for the outpatient. In conclusion, I think the literature that we've demonstrated here today, uh, though retrospective in nature, in com combination with the historic use and use of phenobarbital um, in Europe, uh, has demonstrated that it can be utilized as a non-inferior agent overall. I don't think that it would be utilized or be able or be prudent to be utilized in every specific patient. Um, I think for my ideal patient, I would like to utilize it more in the ICU setting. Um, I would probably only look to add it on as an initial loading dose therapy in patients who have a history of DT or seizures or who are actively seizing or having DT. 
Um, and then I'd also think that we'd be able to consider this as a first-line secondary agent for patients who are benzodiazepine refractory. And so for me, my ideal regimen looks to be uh, of a phenobarbital load somewhere between 5 and 10 milligrams per kilogram, and then putting patients on a PRN uh, benzodiazepine schedule based off of CWA protocol. However, it would also be um, uh, efficacious, as the literature demonstrates, to have a scheduled uh, bolus dosing regimen secondary. Uh, for me, however, I think mitigating the overall use of phenobarbital and just getting it on board for that uh, synergistic approach to decrease uh, mechanical ventilation, length of stay, and benzodiazepine use overall um, would be of its probably greatest benefit. Looking at um, its growing popularity right now, there's a plethora of literature that's uh, currently under development. There's one study that's currently being published right now out of Johns Hopkins, um, and that particular study is focusing on uh, monotherapy with phenobarbital with a loading dose and a scheduled taper after. Uh, versus monotherapy phenobarbital loading dose with a PRN phenobarboluses uh, secondary to that. Um, their initial results have demonstrated that there's no benefit of scheduling phenobarbital after the initial loading dose, which precludes me a little bit more towards that utilization of benzodiazepines as needed after the initial load. There's also an aptly named PARTY study, which is looking specifically at phenobarbital versus benzodiazepines, um, and they are looking specifically at a loading dose with um, a scheduled uh, taper regimen after versus the standard of care benzodiazepine per CWA protocol. However, if I was going to design my own study, um, what I would like to look at is assessing medical ICU patients with a history of severe AWS. I'd want to look at utilizing that phenobarbital load initially up front, uh, somewhere between 5 and 10 milligrams, and then putting them on a scheduled CWA protocol with PRN benzos, um, and compare it to our standard of practice of benzodiazepines per CWA protocol. I want to assess um, length of stay for ICU and hospital, development of severe clinical complications, um, and overall benzodiazepine use as well. And so um, this would hopefully be done in a prospective and even, fingers crossed, randomized fashion uh, to kind of solidify some of the literature that's retrospective in nature that we have currently and provide us with a little bit better focus on how we should be utilizing phenobarbital in the ICU setting uh, going forward. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.